Good morning, everybody. I'm glad that you're here today. I'm also glad that we didn't, uh, my son sent me a video. My, uh, my oldest son, I have two sons, but my oldest son, the one who lives in Milwaukee, sent me a video from his car of the snowstorm that they were receiving in Milwaukee yesterday, three to six inches. I am so glad that we didn't wake up to any of that. Uh, they can have it. And uh, so happy spring to those in Milwaukee. Uh, Hopefully they'll be able to have it sometime in the middle of July or something like that when spring rolls through that that area of the country. If you have some kids who are in grades uh, one through five and they want to head to junior church, you are welcome to dismiss them at this point. The rest of you can go ahead and reach into that uh, program. Hopefully you got it on your way in and uh, you can pull out the insert and follow along with me as we uh, hop back into a book that we've been working our way through kind of methodically over the last uh, several months. It might have been stretched into over a year now, I think. Two years? Emma gives me the sign. Two years. Wow. Uh, So thanks for uh, the clarification there. Just a little bit off, as I was saying, months, and it's actually been, well, it's still like 24 months then, right? Okay, good. So we're in Romans 11 now, and uh, so over the uh, course of about the next month or so, uh, if you want to live in that book along with us and, and what we're doing on Sunday morning, certainly we always encourage you to do that to, uh, and to invest some of your own time and study into that. You might be at a different place in your, you know, in your devotional schedule, reading a book or doing another book study of the Bible or something like that, which is always okay. But if you want to invest some time in Romans 11 over the next month, that, of course, would be a value add uh, for you. Uh, we looked at Romans 9 and 10 in the recent past, and uh, through that, through that, uh, the journey through Romans 9 and 10, it was all about trying to understand Israel's unbelief. In chapter 9, Paul had emphasized that Israel's unbelief was part of God's purpose in election, that he had been passing over some and that there was an Israel within Israel that existed. But then in chapter 10, he, all, he pointed out that uh, the, the idea of Israel's unbelief was also due to their own disobedience. And so we have the, the whole antimony, the, the paradox, the kind of like intellectual, sometimes uh, difficulty in understanding the way in which divine sovereignty relates to human responsibility. But Paul didn't say it was one or the other. He seemed to indicate in Romans 9 and 10 that it was both. And so... He had begun these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, with this tragic paradox of Israel's condition, that they were uniquely privileged by God, and yet they were entrenched in unbelief. And it was, again, to be attributed to both God's purpose in election as well as their own disobedience. So one might have expected that since they, to a large degree, had rejected God, namely had rejected God incarnate, Jesus, Some would think, well, maybe God has rejected them. And so that's the question that we're going to begin chapter 11 with today is, is God done with Israel? Has he rejected Israel? I was uh, listening to to the radio on the way uh, driving around this week, and this one guy, I think I was listening to some kind of a sports talk radio or something like that, I think, and and as they were talking about the possibility of this storm that was coming last night in the snow, and this guy was saying, if I wake up to five inches, I'm just, I'm done with Michigan. I'm done with this area. I'm done with it. Now, in reality, he really wasn't, right? But you guys use that phrase sometimes. I'm so done with this. So done with this conversation. I'm so done with this weather. I'm so done with whatever it might be. 
So is God done with Israel? That's what we are looking at today. And again, if you have that, those notes, you can, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read that entire passage that's listed there, verses 1 through 10 in Romans 11. Or you can pull it up on your own device in, the, in a, in a, uh, a translation that you prefer. But I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So follow along with me. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. Let's pray for just a moment. Thank you, Father, for the gift of, of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we can come to you and and ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives right now at this moment. And so, God, as as we come to you and seek your, 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 your teaching today, we pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would help us to glean the truth that you desire to, to uh, impress on our hearts. And also, Lord, that, that it would uh, not just be something that we know, but that it would sink into our hearts and it would help us, Lord, to, to, it would change the nature of our relationship with you. So we thank you, God, for uh, the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we ask that you would be glorified as we focus on these verses that you inspired Paul to write many, many years ago. We pray, Lord, that they would accomplish what you would want them to accomplish today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just work down through uh, the answers that Paul gives uh, through this passage about whether or not God is done with Israel and then uh, also then take a look at uh, what some conclusions Paul drew from that reality as he answers this rhetorical question his first and, and his abiding answer that you, you saw, of course, is that has, if, to the question, is God done with Israel? Has God rejected Israel? He says, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Uh, in some translations, it say, may it never be so. God forbid that kind of intensity. It's a very emphatic no that God has not um, rejected his people. And then he's going to, to basically kind of give um, a few re, re, kind of uh, reasons to kind of build off the, of why we can give the answer no. So the first thing is, he's going to say, no, God has not rejected his people because God is faithful. He is faithful. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
That's, a, that's a, a basically a, a theological reason that Paul is giving. That in, in, other, in other words, he's answering the question by underlining and describing them, that is, Israel, as his people whom he foreknew. So, so basically what the, the point that Paul is making here is that rejection by God of his people whom he foreknew would be incompatible. Those two things couldn't go together. God could not at the same time be faithful to his people and reject them because he foreknew them. Now, the, the, the word foreknew is a, is a layered word, and, 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 and it it's, can be difficult to define. Uh, it could be foreknowledge alone. It could, could be foreknowledge that, that is more like a, fore, a forechoosing of them, an election of them. And, and so this idea, though, at, at a minimum, is, that, that, God is that Paul is saying that it would be mutually incompatible. They, these two things could not go together. It could not go together that they would be his people and that he would reject them, that he would foreknow them and at the same time reject them. That can't happen. So his first reason is just a theological reason based on the character of God. We know God to be faithful. If God makes a promise, he keeps it. He's not going to break it. Now, it can be broken on the human side of things, and that's what chapter 10 was all about, right? Chapter 10 was all about because of Israel's disobedience, there exists this Israel, and we're going to get kind of a little bit to that as we wrap up the, this morning when we t- talk about the present reality. What, what, what conclusions can we make, is Paul making about today based upon these answers that he's giving to this question of whether or not God has rejected his people? So as we, as we think about this, this reality, about whether or not God could reject his people, again, God, because he is faithful to his, his promises, always faithful to his promises, trustworthy, there's no one in this room that, is, that has kept every promise they've ever made. That's what we humans do, right? We mess up. We break promises. Some we keep. And some you've kept faithfully, but there are others. You could even probably think of one right now. You could even jot it down. I made this promise back in 1999 to do this, or I made this promise last week at work to do that. Whatever it might have been, we break promises all the time, but God is faithful. And because God, because he called them his people, because he foreknew them, we cannot say that God has rejected his people because the character of God would not allow it to be so. Make sense? So the first answer is a theological reason. We know who God is, and God, as the faithful one, could not break a promise. He is faithful, and so we can trust him. So he hasn't rejected his people. That's the first, that's the first answer. No, because God is faithful. Secondly, Paul says, no, and he says, look at me. Consider me. For and I underlined that portion there. Of course, it's not underlined in the, in, the, in the Bible or anything. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. I, too, am an Israelite. If God has rejected his people, I'm one of his people. I'm a descendant of the one to whom he made the promise to, that he would be their God and that they would be his people, Abraham. And so if God has rejected his, his people, if God has rejected his people, then he's rejected me too. Paul is, 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 is a, a really helping us to, to understand not only that he was saved, but also the way in which it occurred. That Paul was actively engaged in working against God. 
He was one who was working against God, even though he, was, he thought he was doing what God would want him to do. And so Paul, even the one who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, who with all his strength contended against God, Paul did that. If, if, Paul would, if even Paul was not beyond the reach of God keeping his promise to his people, then of course we can't say that God has rejected his people. I am an Israelite. I was saved, and, and almost like Paul is saved, saying, even me, I was saved. I was working against him, actively engaged in persecuting the church unknowingly, right? He was acting out of ignorance, but what did God do? God, because of his love, because of his election, because of, of his choice, he reached down into Paul's life. Now, did Paul have to respond in faith? Absolutely, yes, he did. But again, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, working together. God breaks into Paul's life, and, and at that point, his name is Saul, says, hey, why, why, why are you contending against me? He opens his eyes to the truth of the person of Jesus. Paul receives that by faith, and he becomes then God's apostle to the Gentiles. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, and even though I was actively working against God, he intervened in my life, and now I'm one of his by grace. And that's the important thing that we're going to get to as we wrap up this morning. So has God, has God done with Israel? Has he rejected his people? No. Why? Because number one, God is faithful. No. Why? Look at me. I'm an Israelite. And I'm part of, I'm part of the redeemed. I've, I'm, I'm part of the ones who have been redeemed by grace. And then third, Paul's going to say, no, check out history. Check out history. He says, or don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Now, the passage that, that uh, Paul is, uh, the, the story and the passage that Paul is referring to is found in, in 1 Kings 18 and 19. So we don't have the time to delve too deeply into that today, but you can do some, again, some work on your own this week and, and reminding some of you might, the story might be familiar. Maybe you want to refamiliarize yourself with it if, you're not, if, you, if you can't remember. But basically, it's the story of, of Elijah and the, the battle that he had with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now, this is a contemporary picture of Mount Carmel. This is the Mount Carmel Highway, as you can see in Israel. And so it was on this mount that uh, Elijah contended with the prophets of Baal basically to see whose God was God. And at the, again, to shorten it down, basically Elijah with, uh, um, I will say, quite a little bit of trash talking going on as he interacted with the prophets of Baal. He eventually uh, is the winner. Actually, God's the winner. His God is the winner as uh, God does a miraculous consumption of, uh, of a sacrifice um, that had been kind of added to uh, by, by Elijah. Some dynamics have been added to that. So after the victory on Mount Carmel, in, in which we, he had uh, battled the prophets of Baal, we find in 1 Kings 19 that, that, that Ahab, who was the king at the time, told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets, that is the prophets of Baal, with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, I'm coming after you, buddy. <laughs> and so Elijah, in verse 3, was afraid, and he ran for his life. 
When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked with over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. So even though Elijah had experienced this incredible and dramatic victory, he, just like us, was, was a, a human being. He was threatened by a very powerful person, by a very vindictive person. He knew the reputation of Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. And he knew that he, his, or he thought that his life was in, in danger, that he was going to be killed. And so this guy is depressed. He's afraid. He's kind of on the, on the run. And even though God intervenes in his life in a, in a very dramatic way, he finds himself ultimately in this cave feeling very depressed. And the word of the Lord came to him there and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. I'm the only one out there. Anybody else ever feel like that in terms of your faith? I'm the only one. I'm the only Christian in the world. The only Christian on my team, in my school, on my block, at my company, whatever it might be, right? I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. So the Lord has him experience actually the presence of the Lord himself. It's amazing to me. Like, again, Elijah experienced the victory on Mount Carmel. He experiences the provision when he's under the broom tree in the desert. He experiences the presence of the Lord there right after this where, where he says he's, he's, you know, he's the only one left and they're, and they're going to kill him. And the Lord passes by him. And then the voice of the Lord says to him again, if you jump down to verse 13, says, Again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says the very same thing that he just said just a few minutes ago. Experienced Mount Carmel, experienced provision under the broom tree, had the presence of the Lord pass by him, and he still says, I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Well, by the end of this story, what God says to him is what Paul recounts then in Romans 11 which is, no, there are 7,000 that I have reserved for myself. It says to him in in verse 18 of 1 Kings 19, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Basically, what, what God is trying to do with Elijah and what Paul is trying to do here is remind us that God has always preserved for him a trace of people who are receiving by faith his gracious offer of life in himself. And so Paul then is going to make some some contemporary conclusions based upon his three-level, kind of like tri-level answer to the question, is God done with 
his people? Has God rejected Israel? No. Why? Consider the character of God. No. Why? Consider me. I'm an Israelite. No. Why? Look at history. Even when one of his greatest prophets thought that he was the only one out there, God was preserving for him a trace. And so he introduces this concept of a remnant, and that's where he then takes the, writer, the, the readers of the passage there in Romans 11 uh, when he wrote to them about this. So it says, if you, you can see in verse 5, in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant chosen by grace. Follow it on a little bit further. Verse 6, now if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. And here's an important clarification that Paul wants to make. The remnant that exists today in Israel is not of Jews who have faithfully kept the law. Because that doesn't lead to life. Paul is making that clarification clear. The only way that a remnant today exists among Israel is that they would receive Jesus by grace through faith. The same way that an Israelite is saved is the same way that a Gentile, that is, someone who's not Jewish, is saved. They receive the Messiah by grace. They receive the gracious gift of life through the shed blood of Jesus and the belief that he is alive. We just celebrated that very fact, right, last weekend, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. And so Paul's emphasis here ultimately is to remind us that the only way that there exists anyone who is part of the people of God is that he is gracious enough to offer them salvation through his son. Make sense? There's always a remnant by grace. The high cost of grace is the found in the person of Jesus. The free offer of grace is found in the fact that God can give us that by, by and we, we focused on this on, on Friday night last, uh, when we had the, our guest speaker, where God, where Jesus took the wrath of his father. And because Jesus took the wrath of his father on the cross, we don't receive the wrath of the father, but instead we receive what? We receive grace. So where, God, where Jesus receives wrath, we receive grace. And that, therefore, today, Paul is saying, therefore, today, there exists this remnant, this remnant that is by grace, though. It's not by works. It's not by a keeping of the law. It's not, in, in a sense, Paul is saying, it's not what we thought it was. It isn't how we thought we'd get in the right relationship with, his, with, with our father. But God, in his faithful promise to bring to us a blessing for the entire world that came from our father Abram, he kept that promise. He gave us his son. And today we can have a remnant by grace because God is at work through the death and burial and resurrection of his son, Jesus. The sad reality is that just in the same way that there is within every, uh, not only Israel, when we make the same conclusion about the entire human race, there is a remnant by grace, and then there's the sad reality of the remainder that is hardened. We don't have a lot of time left, but let me just t- call your attention to that, uh, that point he makes in verse 7. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for. 
Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect, the ones who were chosen by grace and received by faith the gift of God, the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their their backs be bent continually. It's very... There's, there's lots of imagery here, and this would require more of a, a time of discussion to really delve into these two, these two passages that Paul uh, cites and then the conclusions that he draws. But the point that, it, that, that Paul is trying to make is that, and, and I think it's consistent when we look at the example of Pharaoh, when we look at the example of the way in which Scripture talks about how uh, God hardens the hearts of those who have expressed their own hardening toward him. There is, again, this, this combination, this combination of human responsibility, desire, divine sovereignty. As I mentioned to you, when we look at the example of Pharaoh, there's almost like 50-50 in the verses that refer to Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's almost as if God wanted us to see that God is giving over, giving people over to their own desires. Even the example in Romans 1 kind of alludes to that reality of God giving people over to the desires of their heart. That as we harden our hearts against him, God gives us over to that place of hardening and cooperates in a sense with our desire to harden ourselves against him. That's why it's a very dangerous thing. I, and, and I can't give you like a, a mathematical equation here, but I believe that it's a very dangerous thing when we find ourselves resisting the gospel, resisting the offer of free grace through Jesus Christ, resisting God's invitation for us to have a relationship with him because as we harden ourselves against that over and over and over and over, God begins to withdraw from those who are withdrawing from him. That's, that, that's, that's a brutal reality. But it's clear from Scripture that it's one that exists. It may not be something that we like to hear, but it doesn't change that that's what Scripture teaches. And so this idea of a heart that is hard this idea of, of someone who has rejected God and then been rejected by him. The only answer to that is found in what? Again, grace. There's, that's the only answer. The only, that there, we can't climb ourselves, we can't climb out of that place. We don't have the orientation to track our way back to God. The only way in which yeah, that this, this, trans, this spiritual condition can change is if God, in the same way that he did with the Apostle Paul himself, God intervenes in the life of someone by his grace, grace with this free offer of, of Jesus Christ. Free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so that's all that we hope for. That's all that we can hope for. 
And that's why, again, that's why Paul wants to make this point up in verse 6. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. We can't soften ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't reverse the curse, so to speak, on ourselves. But God can. And as long as it is today, as long as you still have an opportunity to hear and receive, today is the day. Scripture makes, it, makes this, this idea very, one of, of extreme urgency. Today is the day. It's imperative that we receive the grace of God today because beyond that, there is no guarantee, right? And we don't want to be, we don't want anyone to be in that place where as they resist, as they resist, as they resist, as they get more and more hard and less and less sensitive to the truth of the gospel and the movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they often, they, they, they end up being at a place where ultimately the Holy Spirit doesn't even impact them anymore. None of us, I would want none of us in this room or none of, really, my desire would be no one in the world would be hardened. But we know from, again, from what Jesus teaches, from what Paul teaches, that ultimately there are many people who have hardened their hearts against God. And I pray that's not your heart today. I pray that you don't have this spirit of stupor. I pray that you are not hearing, but I pray that you're not just uh, hearing these words, but not actually hearing the truth that is in them this offer of salvation through Christ. So the point that we walk away with today from Romans, these first 10 verses of of Romans 11, is that God most certainly not, in no way has he rejected his people. He's faithful. He reached down in the life of Paul. He reminded Elijah that he had had a remnant even at that point. And so today... A remnant still exists, but it's a remnant not by works, but a remnant that is by grace. And so grace, the free offer of salvation through the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is where we have hope. Otherwise, spirit of stupor, hardened hearts, separation from God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear word from Paul today. And God, that I, I pray that as we, as we have interacted with it, that we wouldn't walk away and kind of just forget about the point that he's making. We would remember and reflect on today your faithfulness, your election, your grace. Father God, may we receive that in faith with a heart that is open and pliable. May you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, Continue to grow us as people who are part of your remnant who have been chosen by your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are continuing to work among 
your people, the descendants of Abraham, by bringing many of them to faith in the Messiah, Jesus. And we pray that that would occur both among many in Gentile, Jew alike, that we might experience new life in you and whole life in you. In his name we pray, amen.